Okay. Now, uh, we had this great story read, and there's, uh, there's a lot in it. But for me, it raises this very pointed and personal question. And it gives me enormous encouragement as I think about it. And the question is this. Is there anybody who is beyond the reach of God's love and power? Is there anyone that God can't connect with to bless and to love and to heal and to save? And this text with its three little vignettes, the three people we see, says loudly and clearly, guess what, people? There is no one in this world, you or I or people we love, there is no one who is beyond the love and the care and the power of God to save and to connect with. Because we see in these three stories, three people of vastly different socioeconomic status, of vastly different uh, ethnicity and culture uh, and uh, religious background, religiosity. And for each of them, they have this life-changing encounter with God and the power of the gospel. And so I just want you to leave this morning in, in a little while, just with your heart full of joy at, and hope at the power of God in your life and in our world. And if, if we can do that, I'll be happy. And I think I'll have done my job. So that's the, I think that's what the text is about. So let's have a look and have a think about it. The, Paul um, and Silas uh, are traveling and they get to Philippi, which is a Roman colony, the leading city of the district of Macedonia. Not the formal capital city, but the most influential high-status uh, city. A bit like you might say, you know, Canberra is the formal capital, but Sydney is clearly the leading city uh, in Australia, uh, culturally, economically, in terms of beauty, in terms of caliber of people. Um, just this is for all my friends in Melbourne who might listen to this online. Um, it's, uh, you know, the leading city. On the Sabbath, they go down outside the city gate to the river to pray. Uh, they're looking for Jewish people because Paul's strategy then, and I think it should still be the strategy now, is whenever the gospel comes to a new part of the world to find the Jews first. Go to the Jews first and then after that to the Gentiles. So he goes and finds this group of Jewish people and they're not at a synagogue, they're just gathering and it's women. You need 10 Jewish adult males to form a synagogue. There weren't enough Jews. They're outside the city gates so they're not really part of the formal city structures. And he sits down, which is the position of a teacher, uh, in, uh, in a synagogue, in a Jewish gathering, and he begins to teach. And guess who he meets? He meets Lydia. And Lydia is a woman from the city of Thyatira, and she's a dealer in purple cloth. So what can we tell about uh, the people that God is powerful to connect with? Well, first of all, God connects with women. I know, hey? Well, look... One of the things we've got to keep arguing for and putting in front of our culture is that the status of women in the Bible is equal to that of men. Like, women have this remarkable status in, uh, in, in Christianity. That's why the church boomed in the first 300 years, because compared to how Roman and pagan women were treated, they were treated so well in the early church. So God connects with this woman, 
And we see by the end of the chapter, Lydia now is a leader in the house church. Her, her house has become the gathering place for the early group of believers. So, so God, uh, God is powerful to meet with people uh, of both genders or any and all genders, as you may choose to identify. Uh, then... Uh, she's not just any woman. She's uh, an outsider. She's from Thyatira. She's a dealer in purple cloth. Okay, so what does that mean? Well, she probably had the franchise, uh, an imperial deal, to bring purple cloth, which was very expensive, in from Thyatira and to sell it into Philippine, into the surrounding area. So she's an entrepreneur. She's a businesswoman. She's a trader. And she's successful at it. She go, yes! God can connect with entrepreneurial female business owners, entrepreneurial traders who exploit the opportunities to say, well, I can, bring, I can bring a product from here, I can bring it into here, I can flog it for a margin, I can make money. And God says, I can connect with you, I love you. Now, why is that good news? Well, listen, uh, in some, every church or part of the church develops its own sort of subculture. And different churches, uh, over time, develop different sort of hierarchies of people we most think God is most likely to connect with. And this often taps into hierarchies of vocational sort of acceptability. So let's do with the first. Sometimes in our culture, we think Christianity is a crutch for the weak. It's for the broken, the downcast. If you are here this morning and you are, you're not a recovering addict, you're in your addiction. You've lost your marriage. You've lost your business. You've gone bust. Uh, you are hopeless and helpless. Then Jesus is for you. If you're poor and downcast and divorced and miserable and, and you've lost custody of your kids and you're struggling with mental illness, then Jesus is for you. And you know the good news is? That's true. But you know the other good news? If you are successful, if you are wealthy, if life is going really, really well, if you're closing great business deals, you're getting promoted, you are making lots of money, you are finding opportunities in the marketplace where you can add value and, and you can employ people and you can build a business and you can go out into the world and make life work and, and your family's pretty much together and you are high status and you are smashing it in the world, then the good news is Jesus is for you. Isn't that great? That's Lydia, hey? Now, um, we don't want to idolize any particular vocation. Um, one of the things that's very confronting in our particular denominational tribe as Anglicans is some, I find this text interesting and hopefully empowering because sometimes we can, uh, flowing from who we think God's really interested in, we can have a, a particularly skewed idea of what's a really good thing to do with our lives, right? Like our vocation. So um, certainly in the church I was converted in and grew up in, there was a pecking order of, uh, of vocational respectability in the church. And right up the top was anything to do with the caring professions. If you were, like if you were really a serious Christian uh, and you, you know, then God had worked in your life, then you would do medicine or nursing or physio or OT or something where you were caring with people. For me, it worked out in vocational advice I got when I was trying to figure out what to do with life where 
I did all this testing, and the guy said to me, well, you know, you're a Christian, so you, know, you, you could either do law or medicine, because you're a Christian, you should do medicine. Well, the caring professions, no, no, that's caring professions are good, right? Um, but then in the high, you, know, you work down the hierarchy, and, and sometimes in our tradition there can be a, a suspicion of business. Oh, you know, who can trust business people? Somehow managers are, oh, there's something wrong about making money and the profit motive. Now, there's another whole sermon here, but I think God has wired us up to add value, to take uh, resources, to trade, uh, and to, to use those resources and our creativity to produce products that meet needs and customers uh, and that create uh, surplus capital that we can reinvest to create more goods and products and services and build businesses and create more value and serve the needs of other customers and so on. I think God is pro-market and pro-business, and he loves connecting with people like Lydia. Now, uh, he's also really pro-healthcare. In other churches, the entrepreneurs, business people are, you know, they're the ones who are held up and put on a pedestal. And and the point is, when you read the Bible, God loves everyone, (laughs) And his power is powerful for everyone. And I think when I read this, I think it's incredibly good news that, that high-capacity rich women can be, can be saved by God because when I look around our suburb and where we do church, isn't our city full of high-capacity successful people, men and women? And I think it's great that God can actually connect with everyone. So there we go. Uh, God connects with Lydia and uh, she is a worshiper. She's not Jewish yet, but she's, she's religious. And uh, she's persuasive. <laughs> Just as an aside, when you, the, she persuades these people. She says, come and stay at my house. So she is a woman of influence. It's awesome. We need more and more and more and more of those in our city. Now, just I- I- as soon as we might think, well, Mark, that sounds... Um, kind of elitist and just all about success. Who's the next person we see in the story? Well, once we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by another woman. But she's vastly different, isn't she? She's a female slave. She's not given a name. She's, she's enslaved uh, as a person, and she's enslaved spiritually. She had a spirit, uh, the, the python spirit is actually what, it, what, we, what the underlying language translates it as, and at, the, at this time there was a, a, a python spirit that, for example, was working through the Delphi, the oracle at Delphi, and was the spirit of fortune-telling, a snake spirit of fortune-telling. And so she is possessed by a spirit of fortune-telling. She doesn't even get the money from her own possession, Her slave owners get this. It's hard to imagine a person in society of a lower social uh, or economic standing. Like, she is possessed at every level, spiritually, economically, socially. Uh, Her whole being at every level is possessed. And uh, she she follows Paul and the rest of us. Um, The us now in, in here is is Luke seems to have joined the, the missionary party. And he says, uh, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. Now, this can be a little confusing. We can think, oh, she's a great Christian. That's awesome. She's helping out. Uh, not so fast. 
the Most High God is actually a technical phrase that is used in paganism and polytheism of the time to say, well, here's all your multiple gods, and, uh, and these guys are just um, serving. They're telling you how the, the, the top dog on the pantheon of gods can help you out, and to be saved can be uh, not saved in the sense of the Christian salvation, but to be rescued, to become rich, to become happy, and so forth. And it seems like this is a massive distraction. This is actually working against what Paul and Silas and the team are saying. And I love the story. It's actually quite funny. For many days, she kept this up. And finally, he became so annoyed. Actually, in the word there, annoyed, uh, has another, not just anger, but actually has a connotation of being deeply troubled. So it's like Paul looks at her and goes, you know, I've put up with her, I've put up with her, I've put up with her, but now I've got to do something because this is actually enormously concerning, both at a, at a kind of missionary teaching level, but also existentially and personally. It would be a bit like, um, imagine if I was here Sunday after Sunday and there was someone next to me who kept yelling out, um, who kept yelling out, you know, listen to Mark, he's telling you how to connect with Allah. And if you follow Mark's teaching, you will know Allah, you will follow in the footsteps of the prophet, and you will, you will enter paradise with all the other jihadis. Now, and, and if we went, and just days and days, I'm talking about Jesus, and they're going, Mark's actually telling you about Allah. It'd be a little confusing, right? Uh, so um, eventually, Paul just goes, man, I've got to do something about this. And so he turns around, says to the spirit, not to the woman. He's annoyed with the spirit. He has compassion on the woman. And he says, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. Your God is powerful to set people free from slavery when they are nameless and at the bottom of the heap, when no one else cares. He's going to set her free from economic bondage, but he sets her free from spiritual bondage. God is powerful, not just over the woman, but over the demon who is in the woman. And that is good news, isn't it? I mean, I think that's great news. Now, you may not feel like it's really good news for, uh, for one really simple reason. Stories of demon possession and spiritual attack like this seem quite alien and distant from much of our culture. Isn't, isn't that right? I mean, if I, if I said to you, when last did we have a good exorcism here at church? Um, when, when last was there a good exorcism? Or even a half-baked exorcism? Even just a, I gave it a go and it didn't work exorcism? Well, let me tell you, I, as C.S. Lewis says in his book, um, the screw tape letters, Satan's most effective strategy in our culture is convincing us that he doesn't exist and isn't at work in our world. I think Satan is. And I think it's good news that God has power over Satan and his demons. He did then and he does today. And I think we need to understand that because we need to help, uh, we need with God to trust him to set people free. Now you might say, I have no experience of this. I've told this story before. Let me tell it again. Uh, some years ago, at our church in Melbourne, uh, Christ Church Hawthorne, many years ago, it was a beautiful bluestone building, National Trust listed. It was in a similar shape to this, in a cross shape. Uh, out one side was a vestry with, with an office 
rented out to the National Alpha Office, and our friend Kate was running the National Alpha Office in, in, uh, in, that, uh, in, in that part of the building. One Sunday, we'd replanted this church. It was going gangbusters. People were becoming Christians. New people were coming, so we were going to do a baptism. So we got a big tub from, borrowed it from our, at the church up, our sending church, St. Hillary's in Kew, and it was a great big, big tub, like a big above-ground spa. And so we, we bumped this in on a Saturday afternoon, Hamish, my assistant, and myself, and Hamish was a young guy, and I was not that much older, and, and we had a great big fire hose on the wall that we, were, we used to fill the tub up. And it was all set up. We'd done this before at St. Hillary's. So the Saturday afternoon, I say, Hamish, okay, you know what to do. Get the hose. And we had a brick down the bottom, and you tie off the hose onto the brick to keep the hose weighted down. And Hamish does that, and I go, he goes, can I shoot off? So yeah, it's fine. Like here, I was living in the rectory next door. So I say to Hamish, okay, you go. I'll come back in about 45 minutes and turn the tap off. It'll be full by then. We'll put the heaters on. It'll all be sweet for the baptisms the next morning. So we do that. Uh, Hamish, Hamish ties it off. He disappears. I turn the water on. It's all going great. I leave out. I, I leave the building. 45 minutes later, the alarm goes off. I walk back into the church. I open the door and I hear a splushing sound. And I think to myself, that's not good. Literally about a minute after we'd left, what must have happened was Hamish, who had many gifts, tying knots was not one of them. The knot had come undone, and this fire hose was up like a cobra doing this all around the building. And, and the whole building was under about an inch of water. Uh, beautiful red carpet, 120-year-old carpet. And what made it particularly tricky was that there, in typical Melbourne style, uh, cutting-edge technology in the 1940s, they'd put heating, electric heating, under all the pews. So there were heating bars under the pews. Mostly the use these days was to tell if people, if ladies' handbags were leather or vinyl as you lent them against the heating in a service. So all the heating bars are there. Everything's flooded. The electrical system's flooded. The carpet's flooded. So we have to unbolt all the pews, pull the pews up, and then decommission the electrical system. So the emergency recovery people come in on, a, on the Monday, everything's pulled up, the carpet's dried. Tuesday, the sparkies come in, and they come in to decommission the electrics and advise us on what to happen next. Tuesday afternoon, I go in to see how they're doing. And for the first time in, in, a, in 150 years, there's space in the church, right? Because all the pews are out and the electrics are out. So I'm down the back talking to these sparkies, and they're young guys. Turns out they go to a local Pentecostal church, and they come to me, and they go, we're chatting, and they go, Mark... Um, can we pray for your church? Because like we've been doing the electricity and that's all cool, but we just feel like we should pray for spiritual freedom for your church. So I go, that'd be awesome. You, you go. Because here's a bit of free advice. Um, whenever anyone offers to pray for you, just accept it. Just go, yeah, you know, unless they're crazy. But, you know, these guys didn't seem like they were crazy, lovely young Christian men. So off they go praying. And they are walking around the building and they are praying praying very loudly in tongues, and they're rebuking this and rebuking that, and they're just praying for God's blessing to come upon us. Uh, they've been doing this for a while, and they come back to the back where I am praying quietly in my Anglican style, and because um, God doesn't need to be yelled at, you know, he's a God of order, right? So, uh, so they come to me and they say, Mark, we'd love to, can we pray for you as the pastor? And I say, yeah, I'd love that. That'd be awesome. Again, never say no. So they're praying. I've never met these guys. We've been chatting for like five minutes and been praying for 20 minutes, and now they come to start praying for me. And as they, they two of them on either side, they lay hands on me and they start praying for me. And a couple of minutes in, one of them goes, Mark, um, I just sense God is saying there's stuff in your life, uh, that there's spiritual 
oppression in your life around your father. And, uh, and I think there's stuff there with your dad that has given Satan a foothold in your life, and we'd like to pray for you to be healed and free of that. Is that okay? And I'm like, you have no idea how much I need that. So they start praying for me, uh, specifically that God would set me free from any uh, oppression or uh, any baggage from my dad. And as they do that, uh, I just, two things happen. One, I feel this incredible power come upon me and I start falling backwards. And as that happens, uh, I'm still thinking clearly uh, and I'm going, oh, this is very interesting. As that happens, I feel this thing actually come up through my throat and out of my mouth as they cast out the demon. And uh, I end up on the floor and they're praying for me and I'm full of peace and I'm just lying there and they're just praying God's blessing on me and freedom and the demon is gone, the spiritual forces have gone. And uh, eventually, uh, in the background, I hear the school bell ring, which is the primary school right next to us. And I think I've got to better go fetch the kids. So I stand up and I say to them, oh, it's probably time I should go. And they said, we'd just like to pray one last blessing for you. So I said, oh, that's sure. Sure, that'd be fine. The guy lays his hand on my head and he, and he prays a very specific prayer. He says, he says, Holy Spirit, will you fill Mark? Will you fill him so full of God and so full of the Holy Spirit that the light of Christ shines out of his eyes and people can see Jesus in him? I thought, that's awesome. So I go out. On my way out, I stick my nose into our vestry, into the office where my friend Kate is running, is running Alpha. I just go in to say, I'm okay, because she'd popped in earlier when they were yelling in tongues and she was a little concerned. So, um, so I popped my head in uh, just to say goodbye, and she looked at me a little strangely. And I thought nothing of it. I went home. I was a little shaken. I'm trying to process this, pick the kids up from school, get dinner ready, going, what a, wow, that was pretty, whew. About 8 o'clock that night, my phone goes off, and it's Kate from the Alpha office. Now, she never phones me. So I think, oh, that's amazing. What, what's going on? I answer the phone, and Kate says, look, um, I just wanted to tell you uh, what I saw when you walked in the office this afternoon. I said, it was really, I've never seen this before, but when you put your head around that door, it was like you were so full of the Holy Spirit that the light of Christ was shining out of your eyes, and I could see Jesus in you. And you know what? She used exactly the same words that the guys praying over me had used. And I just thought, Lord, thank you. You've given me such a gift because I'm this, if you know me, I'm slightly cynical, irreverent, and skeptical about lots of stuff. And God had taken a cynical, skeptical me and done a work spiritually in my life. And then he'd given me this little confirmation that I didn't deserve, but I really needed to go. This really was God. It wasn't just some weird, wacky experience. I am so glad that God has the power, the power to, re to remove malevolent, evil demons and spirits from us and from those we love and from our lives. And I'm so glad that God has the power to set the captives free. Now, I'm, I don't know what that means for you, but if you want prayer for freedom, and if you have given through your sin or the sin of others, Satan has a foothold in your life, and you feel like you need freedom and healing, then we need to do that.
because God is powerful to do that. We do not have to live in captivity. And since then, let me tell you, I have prayed for many other people to be set free from demonic oppression, and God has set them free. I've had conversations in my office with demons in other people, talking to the demons as we dealt with what was going on in this person's life, and then they'd leave when you command them to leave in the name of Jesus. I could just, that's the world we live in, right? And, and it's good news that God wants to bring holistic freedom to everybody. And it's a freedom that we won't find anywhere else in the world. We find it in Jesus, right? Now, um, if you're sitting, if you're visiting and you're thinking, or even if you're not, you're regular and you haven't heard this story before and you're going, whoa, that's a little freaky. That's just not much freakier than what we just read about here, hey? This is just normal Christianity. This is just the normal Christian life. And uh, if, you, if you want to talk more, don't be freaked out. I am still fairly normal. I'm still just as irreverent and slightly cynical about all these things. Um, but this is what God does. The final person that God connects with. So we've had a rich, successful uh, businesswoman. We've had a demon-possessed slave. And the last one is a zealous, mean Roman public servant, right? So they get Paul and Silas thrown into jail. They get beaten. Uh, and then the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. So this is the final person. Who's the jailer? Jailers in this day, they're Roman citizens. He's probably an ex-Roman soldier. So brutal, hard man who'd seen and done lots of awful, evil things. And now in his uh, middle age, he's living a comfortable life as a jailer. And he's very zealous, and he's probably a little mean, because he received orders to guard them carefully, but he fastened their feet in the stocks. Now, why? that's because he's mean. Because the stocks were not just, oh, I've chained your feet together like that. They were instruments of torture where your feet were jammed as far apart as they could, and you were in agony while the stocks jammed your feet and jammed your feet, and they kept, you know. So you imagine, there they are, you know, his feet, like, it's like a little rack, pushed their legs right out wide. They're in pain. They're chained there. He didn't have to do that. The text says he did that because he's mean. He's zealous and he's mean. He's a mid-level public servant. He's an ex-soldier. Uh, he's hard and he's cynical. And God gets through to him, right? Which is awesome. Cynical, hard, tough. Now God did use Paul and Silas having a worship service in jail. Talk about inspiring worship. You know, <laughs> get tortured, at midnight you're singing and you're praying, and then a violent earthquake comes, the foundations are shaken, all the prison doors fell open, everyone's chains, everyone's chains come loose. Now some commentators and people read this and go, that couldn't possibly happen, that's all just made up. You know, I don't think, I mean it may be, but, but a priori there's no reason this couldn't happen. If the God, God could create the whole world just by saying the word, there's no reason he can't do stuff like this. So it's every, it happened. I think it happens. The jailer comes up. He sees the prison doors open. He thinks everyone's escaped. So in a shame honor culture, he says, I can't face the shame of failing at my job, of being publicly humiliated. So he thinks I'll kill myself. 
unthinkable in our day and age where we don't live with those same feelings of shame and honor, but he did. And so he goes, uh, my whole life is over. I've totally screwed it up and I'm going to be dishonored now, so I'll kill myself. And Paul goes, don't harm yourself. We're all here. Um, he rushes in and he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they replied, really simple. And I love this. This is the power of God. He says, this is it. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your whole household. And that's what he did then. He believed in Jesus. He didn't just believe about him. He believed in Jesus. And then verse 33, the jailer takes them into the house, washes their wounds, and then they washed him by baptizing him in this beautiful reciprocal interchange. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them, and he was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God. Aren't you glad that God is powerful through the simple gospel of the love and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ to save cynical, hard-bitten, tough men? We sometimes think the gospel Christianity is for soft women. Lydia or the slave girl, it's, it's a woman's religion. I don't, you may never think that, but I hear that a lot. And here is, this is a tough, brutal guy, and he comes to know Jesus. He is saved. And that's good news, yeah? I think that is great news. That is so hopeful and so encouraging and so wonderful. Lydia... The nameless slave girl set free from the demon and the jailer. And what's the result of this? What's the result? What happens in the world when God connects with people and sets them free? Two things. They're filled with joy. I just, I've, when you read the book of Acts you, and you read the Bible, you see this idea of joy popping up all the time. Why do we want people to connect with God? in Jesus Christ, it's because that's what's best for them, that's what's good for them, that's what fills them with joy. Why do you and I want to connect with God? Because that, sisters and brothers, is the source of eternal joy. I don't know why so many Christians look so miserable so much of the time. I don't know. I mean, I know church is uncomfortable and yeah, blah, blah, life's hard. But like, joy, it's there, isn't it? I think if we're not full of joy, we haven't really connected with God meaningfully and deeply and savingly. Now, that doesn't mean a bubbling superficial happiness, but it means at the core of your being, you have what uh, Peter says, a glorious and inexpressible joy. He says, you don't know where it comes from, but you just can't keep it down because it's a spiritual reality that has happened by God invading your life and setting you free, and nothing that can happen in the world can ever touch that joy. Yeah? I think that's what it's saying. That's the first consequence. The second is this, and I love how the story ends. Um, after all of this, they've been released. Uh, Paul and Silas then claim, tell everyone they're Roman citizens, which means they're going to end up, uh, anyway, it's a long story about why they do that. There's a bit of debate. But verse 40 is the kicker, right? The final conclusion of this wonderful story. After Paul and Silas came out of prison, they went to Lydia's house where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. So Lydia is leading a house church in Philippi. And look at how Paul describes them. What is the new relationship between these people? 
brothers and sisters. A rich Greek merchant business leader, a slave woman who is nameless, and a miserable, bitter, mean Roman ex-soldier, now jailer, and he's made them spiritual family. That's what happens. When God connects with us, he makes us sisters and brothers. He makes us a family. I don't know if you've picked this up in the series and Acts, but what's really struck me, and I don't know why I haven't seen it before, but when you read through Acts, the church, God is creating the most inclusive family and organization in the world where massively diverse people can come and find themselves to be family. So friends, we're to be a f- people full of joy and we're a family vastly different. We're not, we, we don't gather because we're all the same. We gather because God has changed our lives and now we're sisters and brothers with all the challenges that families can bring to bear. But also, here's the thing about a family, right? You and I don't get to choose who's in our family. You're just born into it, right? And that's the way the church is. We don't get to choose. I don't reckon Lydia would have wanted to be the sister of the Roman jailer. Do you? And I'm pretty darn sure the Roman jailer wouldn't have wanted to be the brother of the slave girl. But you know what? There it is. They're brothers and sisters. They're family. Most radically inclusive community. So that's the good news. To fill us with joy and hope that God is able and powerful to meet with people from the entire range of human experience, draw them together and make them full of joy and make them a family. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that you do this wonderfully, miraculously, powerfully. Thank you that you, um, the gospel is powerful to change us, that each of us has our own story of connecting with you. And Lord, I just ask you that we'll see more and more and more people in our church coming to know you in this part of Sydney, the rich and the powerful, the oppressed and the broken uh, and the enslaved and, and everything in between, Lord and that you will weave us together into a joyful, united spiritual family. And we ask this in the mighty name of Jesus for his glory and our great good. Amen.